Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 11 of the podcast, and we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward unpacks chapter 4, focusing on verses 1 through 42. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, and we pray you are blessed by what you hear each week. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out previous episodes to get caught up to speed with this study. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Let's now go to chapter 4. Uh, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, notice that John identifies Jesus as the Lord. That is an affirmation of his deity. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, that's interesting. And uh, I believe that was because, again, Jesus' mission was not about the outward. It was about the internal. Remember, John and his disciples, they baptized with water for repentance, to demonstrate what is happening inside, that yes, I am turning from my sin, and yes, I'm turning to the Lord. But it's Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We are the means of God's power. But Jesus is the source. That's the difference. Now there might be some other theological things going on here, but it's interesting that Jesus, it says specifically, John says, was not doing the baptizing. And again, I think that points to the fact that He's the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does the supernatural. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and He had to pass through Samaria... So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, Most likely noon, Jewish time, not 6 p.m., Roman time. But I know some would say that, and I said it before, that... Uh, John would be writing, you know, to Gentiles, and if he didn't make the distinguish, the distinguishing, but I mean, there's debate either way. Uh, noon would be more probable, and the reason why noon would be, well, not maybe not more probable, but here's the thing. Usually women would go in groups to the well, and they would do it in the early hours before the heat of the day, or at the end, well, 6 p.m. would still be pretty hot. So maybe she did come. But notice that the Samaritan woman went alone. Why did she go alone? Because she was considered a shameful woman. Because she was living with a man that she was not married to. And so, uh, this would not have made her a popular uh, woman in the village. So, let's keep reading. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, Jesus decides to go through Samaria with his disciples. We're not sure exactly 
why, but notice in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria, they could have gone the outer route, but it would have taken a lot longer. There was a high road that cut right through Samaria, from Judea to Samaria, that would make it a lot easier to get in Gal- to Galilee. So he decides to go. And remember, a lot of Jews wouldn't even want to go through Samaria because they, they would feel that they would be defiled. And again, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't really care for them either. And so, for whatever reason, Jesus decides to pass through Samaria. Now, I said for whatever reason. Actually, it was a divine appointment. God allows certain events to happen in our lives for a greater purpose. He brings us into the paths of different people for a purpose, always. And in this case, I'm sure Jesus intended to go. So maybe he had to pass through Samaria because he just said, this is what we need to do. Now, the fact of the matter that Jesus spoke to a woman, he's a Jewish rabbi, and Jewish rabbis did not speak to women, generally, especially without the presence of their husbands. The fact that he speaks to a Samaritan woman, and the fact that he speaks to a Samaritan woman of ill repute, is unheard of and unbelievable. No Jewish rabbi would do such a thing. Jesus was always about breaking down the barriers that we put up between ourselves and others and that the world puts up between ourselves and others. If there is one huge demonstration of Christ's deity it is the fact that he is the only one who can break down the barriers. His whole ministry was about breaking down the barriers. If you look at the history of mankind, all the wars, all the conflicts, pretty much everything stems from a division between tribe and tribe, clan and clan, nation and nation, people group and people group, race and race, ethnic group. It's all about that. It's always the us versus them. And the only one who can truly break down those barriers is Christ. There was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. There was the barrier between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus broke them both down. And he does so by simply asking a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. Now, when someone would ask someone that question, the expectation, especially in the middle of the day, we read that Jesus was tired, he was wearied, it was hot. The expectation is that you're going to give the person a cup of water, right? She has the means to draw the water up. But notice how she responds. And it says here, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then, therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then John gives the explanation as if he was writing to Gentiles, which he is, because see, if he was writing to Jews, he wouldn't have to add this. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, of course, he could be writing to Jewish Christians too, but the point of the matter is he has a Gentile audience that he's writing the gospel to. He's making these explanations. And so the Samaritan woman basically is saying, you guys think we're dirt? I'm a woman too. Why are you even talking to me? Do you expect me to give you a drink of water? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what Jesus does is he takes it from the superficial and he goes to the deeper realities of life. And when it comes to, because this isn't just given to us to show who Jesus is. This is given to us to show us how we should interact with others when it pertains to, spirit, uh, to our relationships. And so when Jesus goes from the physical to the spiritual, notice what he does. He gets to, to the heart of what's really important in life. What's really going to give us satisfaction? And if you knew, if you only knew, right, who it is who's asking you, those three words, if you are at a four, only knew, right? And so notice what's at the stake. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what can he give us? Not just physical water, but living water. And what is this living water? The woman isn't sure. She says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's just thinking of like an artesian well. She's thinking of that fresh water that just kind of... But he doesn't even have anything to go get it. So what is he talking about? She still doesn't see what Jesus is saying. You are not... And then she appeals to her faith, her understanding. She says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. I have the references in Genesis and Joshua, where Jacob gave Joseph this parcel of land. And remember, for the Samaritans, the first five books of the Old Testament were considered sacred. They kind of changed things up. They adopted other customs. They basically are, in some ways, like the Muslims are today. Because the Muslims accept the first five books of the Old Testament, the Muslims accept our Gospels. I don't know if you know that or not. The Muslims accept the Psalms, but they're second to the Koran, and they kind of have reworked everything. So instead of Jacob being God's chosen, it's Esau who's God's chosen. Anyway, she appeals to her own religion, and Jesus answers and says to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again.'" But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So do you see where he's taking this? He's talking about this water that is eternal, that will give us eternal life. And what is the water he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about God's very presence and power. Water was a symbol for the Spirit of God. And what he's getting to, too, is the fact that in the physical world, the things that sustain us will eventually end. But he's, willing, he's able to give us eternal water. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's still not getting it. She's thinking of the fountain of youth. Something that's physical something that she can have, and something that will get her out of having to come every day to get water. That was physically demanding. 
Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. So he changes strategically the, the conversation, gets more personal. He already knows the answer. And he says to her, go get your husband. Well, that would really set her back a bit because there was a problem. She didn't have a husband. She was living with a man out of marriage. She says, I have no husband. And then Jesus says to her, and remember, the reason why he would say, go get your husband, was it would be improper for a Jewish man, a man to talk to a woman without the presence of her husband. So he's saying, go get your husband. Now, this is important, too, because notice that Jesus does not, this is an aside, by the way, Jesus does not say that living with someone because they were, she wasn't just living with a man because they were relatives or because they just had a living arrangement. No, he, she was living with the man as a physical, intimate relationship. And notice that Jesus does not say that's the same as marriage or that's okay. He doesn't say that. He is saying that that, that isn't your husband. In other words, that's not a good arrangement. For you have had five, and so Jesus says, you correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And then the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she knows that Jesus is someone special. There's something going on here. He knows my background without even knowing me personally. He's a Jew. He never probably set foot in Samaria before. And so this is what people, a lot of people think Jesus is. He's a prophet. That's what the Muslims think. But he's more than a prophet. Our fathers, but see, she doesn't, she doesn't allow him to go deeper. She doesn't talk about her own issues, but she deflects. She then goes to the religious differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The question of where is true worship? The Samaritans set up shop at Mount Gerizim. That was their temple. The Jews had their temple in Jerusalem. The Jews said, it's in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said, no, it's in Mount Gerizim. The Muslims say it's in Mecca. And Jesus responds that it's not the place that matters. It's the person that matters. And it's the person of himself. Look at what he, how he responds. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. That is a way of basically saying that they really aren't understanding true worship. They're really not knowing God fully. It's partial. They've got a whole hodgepodge of false religion mixed in there. We worship what we know. So he's affirming that the Jews are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. And then he says, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, why is salvation from the Jews? Because Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a Jew, and it is through the Jewish line that the Messiah would be born, not through the Samaritan line. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So what Jesus did with that statement is just knock all the religious ritual, all the religious 
junk, everything that's not from Him, just knock it right down. When it says that God desires people to worship Him in spirit, He's not talking about the Holy Spirit, although ultimately that's going to be involved, but the little s spirit is in their hearts with a sincere attitude, admitting their need for God, seeking the Lord with their heart. That's what it means to worship in spirit, not getting bogged down in all the outward stuff, but always keeping the internal first. And then in truth, it means as God has been revealed in his word and in the living word, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus later says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 24, God is spirit. That means God cannot be contained. God cannot be fully comprehended. God cannot be depicted in an idol. God cannot be adequately described as an, in an abstract concept. But God makes himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh. No one has seen God. It is the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father that has explained him. But ultimately, God is spirit. Now, speaking of water, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore you, that's us, will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So you can see the imagery of that water linked to salvation, everlasting life. You see it again in Isaiah 55, 1-4. through Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come by and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen careful to me, carefully to me, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. What's that everlasting covenant? That's the new covenant in Jesus. According to the faithful mercy shown to David. But notice the two imagery. Water and food. And we're going to see Jesus allude to food now in just a minute. Because water and food is what we need in this life, but what God is saying is, I'm giving you something that's more important than water and food. My provision, my presence, my pardon. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Oh, I'm sorry. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's three other statements to what God is in the New Testament. God is light. In 1 John, God is love. God is a consuming fire, and here we have God is spirit. All right, so again, a a repetition. Must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she's putting her last hope. She's saying, yeah, I don't understand all this, but, but I know Messiah is coming, and when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus says to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. It's the only occasion where Jesus voluntarily admits that he's the Messiah in all the other places. Remember, he says, keep it quiet. Why isn't he keeping it quiet here? For two reasons. He's still early on in his ministry, and he's in Samaria. And the implications of his Messiahship was not the same 
as in Judea, where there was a lot of political stuff going on in Galilee, which would get the ire of the Jewish leadership and the Romans. He didn't have that problem in Samaria. And so he admits he's the Messiah. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Again, this is un- improper. Yet no one said, why do you seek, or why do you speak with her? They had too much respect to start questioning Jesus. So the woman left her water pot, she in haste, leaves her water pot behind, and goes into the city and says to the men, that would be the elders, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, most of the time, men wouldn't respect what a woman had to say, and especially they knew this probably was woman was living with a man. But she just comes upon him, and, and you know, first of all, the fact that, hey, there's a Jewish guy here. And then when she explains it, I'm sure there was a sense of sincerity. They, they sense the sincerity and, and her being moved. And so they say, okay, let's check this out. And so they go. And they were coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So there you have the image of food. Remember, what did Jesus say to Satan when he tempted him in the uh, wilderness after fasting for 40 days? When he tempted Jesus to turn the stones into bread, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we can see the same principle is being applied here. Our need is for food and water And we seek for those things, but Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. But seek first the kingdom. That's more important. Doesn't mean these things are important too, but that's even more important. And so Jesus is saying, my food is to do the will of God, my Father, to accomplish the mission he has given me. And then he highlights this mission when he says, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. That's a pretty profound statement because what Jesus is talking, remember he's saying this as the Samaritans are coming to him. And there's going to be a great, Revival in the Samaritan village there. Many are going to come to Christ. And what he is saying is that the fields are ripe. And there are going to be people who are going to come to Christ, but don't think you're the one who is the, is the only reason. That there are people who are planting the seed. There are opportunities that we all have as a result of being exposed to the gospel, and then some labor, some water, but ultimately, as Paul writes in Corinthians, God gives the growth. The work of the Father is to spread the kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing, and he goes to the Samaritans to do that. And they testify that he is who he said he is. Let's continue reading. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Do you have a personal testimony? The woman was giving her personal testimony how Jesus changed her. And she brought others to Jesus. That's what our job is. But it isn't just the word of our testimony that's going to transform a person. 
They have to find out Jesus, who Jesus is for themselves. We're just that. We're just a laborer. And by the way, you have the same imagery. Remember in uh, Matthew and Luke, where Jesus says, "Pray for laborers, for the harvest is plentiful." Here he says, "The harvest is is white, but uh, and ripe, but plentiful." Right? People are out there. We're not just doing this for ourselves. We're not just doing this for the Lord. We're also doing it so that we can get the word out. So we can learn from what the Samaritan woman did. She went and she told others. And then we read, her testimony was, he told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. See, they were seeking after the Lord. There are people out there. It's like the parable of the sower with the seeds. There are people out there where you go out and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And what does Jesus say? Shake the dust off your feet. Move on. Because there's a lot of people who want to hear and want to grow. The Samaritans wanted to hear, wanted to grow, and they wanted Jesus to spend time with them. And he did. And many more believed because of his word. So we have our testimony, but ultimately it's the word of Christ becoming real for the individual. That's the end goal. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So the Samaritans are identifying Jesus as not the Savior of the Samaritans, not the Savior of the Jews, not the Saviors of of the Gentiles, but the Savior of the world. That's what he is. And he shows his heart toward us. Now in closing, just some application points from that whole chapter. Jesus shows his divine nature of love by ministering to a Samaritan woman, not prejudging her, but reaching out to her in love, who was not in a good relationship or a a moral relationship. He shows his love. He shows his divine knowledge by knowing her background already. He demonstrates that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The woman, Jesus keeps things on the spiritual trajectory. He doesn't get sidetracked. She tries to take him down another road of debating religious issues. Remember, if we're sharing our the gospel with people or we're talking about spiritual things, always keep it centered on Jesus Christ. People will try to pull you off on rabbit trails like evolution, like politics, like different denominations, and all sorts of stuff. Like the bad things that are happening in this church or that church. No, bring it back to Christ. Who is Jesus? And why that matters. And the fact that the fields are white with harvest. There are a lot of people who need the Lord. It's only Jesus who can meet their need. And so it is a call for all of us to reflect on what is our personal testimony? How did Jesus come to us? How did Jesus become real to us? And how can we let others know about Him? And it is only Jesus who can truly break down the walls that divide. And we need to have the same attitude that He has when we look at people and not prejudge people and not allow the outward stuff to keep us from penetrating and looking inwardly and seeking to love people, knowing that the only way they're going to be set free from their inner bondage and their inner sin is to see the loving Savior and to be willing to accept that love and mercy and grace. And that's why this incredible account, one of the most known and most profound, uh, is so important when we understand the life and ministry of Jesus.
All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your son. We thank you that Jesus stepped to earth 2,000 years ago. He walked so, so many miles and he talked to people face to face. He preached to masses, he preached to multitudes, but he also engaged one-on-one and he taught his disciples how to do it. I pray that we can take what we learned tonight and think about how we can put it into practice with the people around us. I pray, Lord, that what we heard and, and learned affirms our faith and why we believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and help us to understand the great love that you have, but also appreciate, help us to appreciate your holiness. You don't just sweep things under the rug. There's a great cost to our sin, that there's a reason why there's death in the world. And I pray that all of this will continue to point us to you so that we can point others to him. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with life's meaning and purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God bless.